Welcome to the Nurse Becoming Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Guarneri from the Resume Rx, and this is the podcast that's dedicated to empowering and encouraging nurses along your path of professional and self-discovery. As a nurse practitioner, mom, and business owner, I'm on a mission to help you figure out how to leave your lasting impact on the world, all while bravely and fearlessly growing along the way. Join me for honest conversations and inspiring stories about personal and professional growth, all through the lens of nursing. Well, hey there. Welcome back to another episode of Nurse Becoming. It's your host, Amanda Gorneri. I'm so happy to be with you today and share this amazing episode with you. Frankly, I finished recording it and I just couldn't get over how amazing this story is and how inspiring. And I'm so excited to share it with you today. And I hope that it really resonates with you and motivates you. So I won't spend too much before we dive right in, but today I am featuring an interview with Dr. Sherika Miller. And you may or may not know Sherika from the Instagram world. She has an amazing business as a career coach for nurses. Let me tell you a little bit about her before we get into the episode. So Dr. Miller is a nurse faculty member. She's an entrepreneur, and she's also a foster youth advocate. And after her own experience in foster care as a child, Sherika went on to become a CNA, then an RN, then an NP, and then to earn her PhD in nursing from UCLA. So as you can imagine, Sherika has an amazing story of resilience and tenacity, and it was just such a pleasure to speak with her about this and about how her career was really shaped by her experiences as a child and how there's really a meaningful overlap in these two stories of hers. So without further ado, let's dive right in to my interview with Dr. Sherika Miller. Well, hey, Sherika, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you because you and I kind of have similar Instagram circles, right? Like we're acquaintances on Instagram. And I feel like if this were real non-pandemic life, we would have maybe seen each other at a couple parties and now we're hanging out for the first time in person. So it's such a treat to talk to you. Yes, it's it's the new norm. It's just like we're getting used to a virtual world. So <laughs> yes. Well, I would love to start, you know, I've introduced you a bit already. I would love to hear in your words a little bit about your nursing and professional story first. Yeah, absolutely. I had, you know, such an early start into nursing. Um, High school is when I got into nursing. So I went to high school in Compton and we had a vocational CNA program. Um, and well, we had a lot of vocational programs. You either pick like hair and makeup, cars, or like nursing. I was like, oh, I guess nursing. And then I took the course, and it was great because I was able to start working as a CNA my 11th and 12th grade year in high school. And so I was able to make money, and I was like, I really like, you know, being a nurse in this nursing profession. Then the summer before I was scheduled to go off to school, we had like a family tragedy. So like I said, I lived in Compton. It was, you know, a gang neighborhood. And 
One of my brothers was actually killed in a drive-by shooting, and my dad was shot in his hand. So he went to the local hospital, and he had to do these, like, dressing changes on his hand. And the nurse was, like, teaching me how to do them, and they had, like, a home health nurse come out. And I was like, you know... I don't, and I just remember how the nurse made us feel, you know, like she didn't make us feel like, oh, another gang, you know, violence family. She like really, you know, helped us grieve and helped us work through what was going on with my dad. And so I went off to Howard pretty sure that I was going to go into nursing. When I got to Howard, I was struggling a bit academically. So it took me five years to get the BSN. Ended up coming back home, and this was when nursing jobs were plentiful, right? <laughs> like, you and I may not have had such a successful job during this time because, you know, all of us had offers out of school. We had multiple offers out of school. I don't even remember worried about my resume. So I ended up starting my career in pediatrics uh, at a hospital out here in Long Beach and just really loved nursing, was so happy that I went into this profession. I did bedside for like the first four or five years of my career, just straight bedside, working in peds, just, you know, straight bedside. And then at that point, I knew I wanted to teach very early on. I was like dying to teach. And so no one would hire you with the BSN except for LVN programs. I'm in California, so we call them LVNs, but you know, typically they're called LPNs. So I started teaching. I was like mid-20s maybe <laughs> already teaching in this LPN program and realized that I needed to keep going higher up in my education in order to continue to thrive in nursing academia. So I went and uh, got sports certified as a pediatric nurse practitioner, kept going and ended up with my PhD from UCLA in 2017. But all during that time, I was working. So I left that hospital, went to UCLA in their PEDS ICU. So I did critical care and CVICU and cardiac transplant and things for a while. Ended up going to Children's Hospital, Orange County, working on a medical, neurosurgical floor. So I've always worked, you know, throughout there because I knew that I needed to keep my skills up. And I've always taught and worked and went to school. So during that whole time I was working on the PhD, I was teaching PEDS for six years full time at a BSN program because um, I had my MSN at that point. So I've always kind of had this career where I've been teaching full-time, you know, going to school and making sure I'm working at least per diem once or twice a week, uh, maybe even a little side hustle on Christmas breaks. So I've also worked like home health, hospital-based education, infusion, hospice care, um, just a bunch of different little side hustles. And so I think that gave me such a wide perspective of nursing, that's what kind of drove me into being a nurse career coach and an entrepreneur. So that's where I am now. Uh, I teach full-time right now at a nursing program and a, a DMP program. And then I also run Starter Nurse Academy full-time, which as you know, does the professional development for new grads. And then I do career coaching, helping experienced nurses kind of navigate our profession. That's great. I love Starter Nurse Academy. I feel like that is how you and I have started to cross paths because we met on Instagram. So I was going to ask while you were telling the story kind of of all those hats, which which hats are you still wearing? And it sounds like teaching and entrepreneurship are are the main hats, would you say? Yes, I am. I am 100% down with the bedside. So that much I know for sure. Um, I loved, loved, loved my time at the bedside, but uh, I don't anticipate that I'll ever go back, not even 
per diem. So this is my track now. That's awesome. I love that. And I love your journey because you started from the very beginning of the profession and worked your way all the way up, which I think is just so admirable. And there are lots of different pathways for us in this profession. And I really, I really respect, respect yours. Something that I know about you that we're going to talk about during this interview is your experience in foster care. So I want to kind of go way back and I'd love for you to share a bit about your personal story so that we can kind of go into how those worlds overlap for you now. And it's so interesting that you ask the question that way because it's something that I never thought would overlap. You know, I never thought my history in foster care would overlap with my actual career in a meaningful way like that. And so I am a foster youth advocate now, and my drive for that is because of my childhood in foster care. I came from a very unstable family, and so maybe around five or six was the first time I went into foster care had a very abrupt entry into foster care because I went first to a residential facility as opposed to like a home, you know, with a mother or two parents. So I went into this kind of very barbaric residential facility, a place called McLaren Hall out here in Los Angeles that was a juvenile detention center and had been converted into what they call an ESH home, an emergency shelter home. So, you know, you're five or six and it really doesn't matter how chaotic your home life is, like it's still your home life. And so when someone rips you out of that, I think that's what people don't realize about foster care. It is the ripping you from what you've ever known. That's like super traumatizing. And mm. also the never knowing, the the loss of autonomy of like, you never know when you're going to court. Literally, like they get you up that morning, like you have court today. And you're like, wait, what? You know, so everything happens to you and you don't get to control any of that. So from the time I went in from six until the time I emancipated out of foster care at 18, um, I was in and out maybe seven or eight different homes. Also going back home to my parents, my parents were still together, but my mother was a heroin addict. And so she literally just could not keep it together. She was a great mother. She was loving. She was really academic. It, it was a strange paradox because like she had us like reading and doing encyclopedias and book reports, but she's literally like high on heroin. And my dad sold drugs. So we're like living in a drug house that eventually is going to get raided, you know, but they were good parents in that, you know, once one of them went to jail or things spiraled out, they would get us another house. They would get, you know, take the parenting classes again, show back up in court and then take us again. You know, and we're like, oh, great. We're going back home. And then, but we never knew so we're like always on edge, you know, as to like, how long are we going to be home this time? And so I went through all of these different placements. And my last placement was where I was telling you in Compton, the last couple of years, I was placed with my paternal grandmother. So my dad was actually there. He got paroled to the house 
May, my senior year, right before I went to prom, he came home and got to send me off to prom. But I was staying with his mother that whole time, the whole years that I was in Compton. And then I, I emancipated out of there. So it was quite a journey. Thank you for sharing that, first of all. You share it very conversationally and you know, you're not that you're lighthearted, but kind of your, your demeanor is that, you know, this is, this is my story and this is my experience. And there's obviously a lot of trauma woven through that story. And, and what has that, you know, if you don't mind me asking, what has that looked like for you to get where you are now to be able to comfortably tell me essentially a stranger to you, this very, you know, personal story about yourself? I think it was a couple of things, but I think it started with my mother and, and, and father too. But one thing though, before I even go there is that, you know, I think people have a really negative perception of foster care all the time and it wasn't all bad. I had some great foster parents that I still love now. And I had a good foster care history in terms of I wasn't beat or abused or locked in a closet or, you know, starved. And, and so, you know, that's, so that's the first thing. Um, but I think that it is the way that my mother is and the relationship that I have with my mother. I have friends that weren't in foster care, but because of the conflict they had with their mother, they had a mother that didn't tell tell them they loved them, wasn't affectionate. We didn't talk about problems in the home. We don't say, you know, and that just wasn't how my house was. So we were a very open, expressive household, and we always talked. We had like a sit-down family meeting about what was happening. So that's the first thing is that I grew up in a very expressive household, and so when it was time for me to start therapy, because I needed a lot of it, uh, right around Howard as an undergrad, maybe 18, 19, 20 is when I first started going to therapy. I would go to where the students were training. And the main issues I dealt with were certainly abandonment because the in and out that my mother, you know, she would she would leave us. She would literally like take us to a friend house and say like, I'll be right back and be gone for like two weeks. And so you never could relax. You know, I'm always on the edge and like it made, it was good and bad because, you know, it made me work so hard. It made me so ambitious, but then it also made me like, you know, survive, 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 survive. And then right when I finished the PhD and I was about 35, it was like, wait a minute, you know, like there was no more rate. You, you have gotten every degree now, Sherika you've done it all. <laughs> you know what I mean? And now, and then it was like, a, it took a minute for like calmness to set in me. And I know it sounds strange, but like these three years, these are the three years that I have started living, like actually thriving and living. And like, what is it that I want? And no longer waiting for literally a knock on the door. Like to this day, a knock on the door makes my heart beat because I'm so used to like social workers, like boom, 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 you know, police knocking on the door, raiding our house, like big boom, you know, where they bust the door in. So even right now on my door, I have a sign that says, um, knock softly, the baby's sleeping. My daughter's turning five and that sign <laughs> is still on there because I do not want people to like knock hard on my door. It will make my heart beat. But figuratively, 
I have stopped waiting on the knock on the door. And figuratively, I have realized that like, no one's going to come and take this degree away. No, can, no one can take away what you have. Relax and like, thrive. And so that has been my healing process is dealing with the abandonment and dealing with the need to just learn how to be and not like, I got to succeed. I can't, I can't, you know, I don't want to, I didn't want to have that same cycle. Yeah. And in your daily life, what does that look like for you? What does rest or calm or just being like, what is that for you? So this is going to sound really strange, but this is the first time in my life I have like kind of strived for mediocrity, for (laughs) mediocrity. I know it it, it sounds crazy, but when I finished with the PhD and and I was looking at like, oh, I'll I'll do a postdoc, you know, my PhD was from UCLA. So they were pushing you towards, and now you'll do a postdoc at Penn, at Stanford, at Yale. And I'm just like, I am, I am done. I I'm really, am done. I, I just want to go and teach at a regular teaching university. I don't want to go to a big name university where I'm going to like, ah, for the next 20, 30 years. So that was the first thing was going to a university that allowed me to have a work-life balance because what they prioritize, which is teaching and service is what I am the best at. Versus if I had stayed at UCLA or went to a research intensive university, you have to do research and get grants. And that part of the PhD was very stressful for me. Whereas service with my foster youth and teaching with my students, I'm like, that's what I got the PhD for. I didn't know about all this other stuff until I got in the program. So that was the first thing was, and then even still just like being okay with not being the best, (laughs) you know what I mean? At every single thing. So this sounds very backwards and counterproductive, you know, but I was talking about this on Instagram the other day. Like I could do more. I could post more. I could advertise more. I could coach more. I could push my business harder. It could blow up faster, you know, or I could take a nap. Like I literally just took a three hour nap. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I just watched 90 day fiance, or I could do that, you know, because I am only 38 and I'm at the peak of my career and I could just like also sit down. So that's one thing. The last thing is, you know, me before we, and, and I've talked about this before that when I first wake up, doesn't matter what is happening the first 10 minutes of every day is for me, you know? So it's me before we, before I check my social media, before I get up and see if my daughter's up yet, before you check on any partners or your students or whatever, I spend the first part of the morning in very much of an inward reflection. And it's not super formal. Like sometimes I'm actually on my phone while I'm doing it, but I'm like listening to a motivational video or, you know, typing on a list of of things I want to accomplish that day. But it's just a time to check in with me. The same way, if your partner had a rough day, the first thing you probably do is like, well, how's today? You know, how are you feeling? You have your podcast today. How, you know, you had the, you had the verdict yesterday. How are you dealing with that? Right. And so the same way you would pour into someone else, you know, I am intentional about pouring into me first to start every day. I love that. I think that is such a great practice and, you know, the striving for mediocrity, I, (laughs) I don't, you know, I, I'd love to reframe that because I don't, I don't think that 
admitting that what you want in your life is space and freedom and time, I think that's the ultimate for me, that's the ultimate point of arrival to have that freedom to say, okay, this is exactly what I want my day to look like. And sometimes it has a three hour nap and 90 day fiance, you know, like that. Um, um, I love that. And I'm, I'm glad you're embracing that. I am. I'm a daily napper. I really am. I nap probably every single day. Yeah, you're right. The striving for media, it's the, it's the striving for the work-life balance and knowing that you could be doing more, but that you're comfortable, you know, just let, just kind of being okay because no job is worth my sanity. No, and I don't want to be rich, you know, if that means I got to be like psycho crazy. So, yeah, you know? Yeah. It's, I think it's about, it's about having the choice, you know? And, and deciding to empower yourself with that choice to, all right, am I going to, am I going to hustle or am I going to, you know, only do two of the four jobs that I used to be doing exactly. in your and case, I, right? I feel, I feel like I hustled from the time I was put in foster care at five or six until 35. I hustled for 30 years straight. I never rested. I never rested. I was always go, go. And so now I'm resting. I don't know what it'll look like in 10 years or 20 years, but I'm also so young to be at this point that like I can chill for a couple of years and just, you know, my business is doing great and I, and I'm fine with that. (laughs) That's awesome. You know, I want to talk a little bit about that overlap of how your foster care journey and story kind of has shaped who you are today. And I think you've already alluded to the fact that kind of that fear of the knock on the door and being in survival mode is what part of what, I don't want to put words in your mouth, part of what led you to advance your schooling, you know, up through basically (laughs) the terminal degree, essentially. Do you also feel that it has shaped who you are as a nurse, not just as a professional, um, but really more of like patient care or teaching or, or more inside the role of nurse? Definitely. I think in terms of how I personally adjusted to nursing and making the transition from new grad, you know, from nursing student to new grad, the experiences that I had definitely prepared me well for that transition. And for really every transition in my career, every hard point, every challenge, the amount of grit and resilience and strength and bounce back that I have inside of me. Um, So just working as a nurse, the shifts, the chaos, you know, the codes and the PICU, the way that I'm able to manage that level of unpredictability and chaos and challenge. And like, you know what I mean? I I, I was a very strong in that regard. Um, When caring for my patients, because I work pediatrics, the interesting thing is that my last job at Children's Hospital Orange County was two minutes away from a residential facility named Orangewood that I used to be in. And when, and we we were what we call an Orangewood feeder. And so when kids would get injured and things at Orangewood, Orangewood had like hundreds of kids, they brought them to us. 
And even when I was working in the first hospital in Long Beach, they brought kids to us. And I remember my first experience, I had this patient, a Guillain-Barre little boy. He was like five or six years old. He was a foster kid. And I look on his paperwork and his social worker's name was the name of a social worker that I had. Velma Thompson. I just, I just will never forget her. If she's listening, I hope, I hope I find her. So that was like my first full circle moment. And then towards the end of my career, when I worked at Children's Hospital Orange County and we got the kids from Orangewood, it would just blow my mind that I am now caring for the kids that came from the foster care facility that I used to live in. And so all the time, you know, it would kind of cross my path. And so I think overall, what it's done is just made me very resilient and just very aware of kind of the background and circumstances that the kids come from that I care for and how important it is to care for their psychosocial needs, just as important as it is to care for their physiologic needs. Mm, Definitely. I love that full circle moment for you. I don't know about you, but in my nursing and advanced practice nursing, granted, I am not in pediatrics. I don't feel like I learned a lot about foster care youth as a patient population. So I'm wondering if you can share with me and share with listeners, what should we know about foster care youth as nurses and as NPs so that we can kind of provide the best care for them? You are absolutely right. We really don't learn much about it. Um, And so before I tell you what you should know about foster youth, you know, I have definitely tried to do my part to bring the awareness even to my nursing students. So when I taught for six years and I taught pediatrics, I would intentionally put them in the clinicals only half the time. And then the other half was a community rotation. And we went to residential foster care facilities. And I took my students into those settings so that they could see that, like, not all the kids are going to come from, you know, a pretty little packaged bow, you know. And and I've just done whatever I could. I just wrote a chapter in the um, acute rehab nurses textbook. I wrote the pediatric chapter. And when we get to special population, on the back, I've definitely added a section on foster youth. So I'm like, I'm going to use, I'm committed to using whatever platform to bring awareness. I think what nurses need to know about foster youth is that a lot of them have trust issues and a lot of them have difficulty with you know, variability and instability. So I facilitate these workshops where I teach nurses. uh, It's called Care of the Hospitalized Foster Child. I did at Children's Hospital Orange County at Torrance Memorial. And so that's kind of like the first thing I tell the nurses is that when you have foster kids on your unit, because they're often there for weeks, they're often cleared to go home but they're on hospital hold because we can't find a placement for them because now that they have a G-tube, you know, that changes what kind of foster parent will take care of them. And so they'll stay on our, our unit for weeks. You know, they just basically live there, vitals once a day, right? And so one simple thing you can do is have the same nurse, the same group of nurses that, you know, are the primary nurses for that patient. I think another thing that I emphasize in that workshop is the amount of compassion you need to have for the biological parents. Mm. Even when the kid is in there for abuse, it's just not your place to make a judgment on this mother's, oh, she's so horrible. How could she do, you know? And, And I see 
nurses turn up their nose when the biological bomb comes. Like, well, what's she coming to visit for? She the one that landed them in here. You know, and and as they have this line of thinking, you know, I can't I'm thinking about all the times my mother neglected me, left us with different people, you know, left us unsupervised. We just didn't get hurt. Um, you know, I do actually have this huge burn on my foot from a time we lived in a motel in Inglewood and uh I should have been cooking with like a hot thing. I was maybe like nine and it spilled down my pants, like burn my foot. She didn't take us to the hospital. So I'm imagining like if I had went to the hospital, like, what do you guys think? My mom doesn't care about me at all. She's a heroin addict. And now my mom is 10 years sober and she's an author, a motivational speaker, a business owner. So you, you decided who she was back when I came to your hospital with a burnt foot because of neglect, whereas this lady deserved empathy and compassion like everyone else. So I think that's another huge thing is that a lot of foster kids still have strong ties to their families and you should respect that and you should nurture that. And then the last thing that individuals should know is about transitional age foster youth. So that's really my target population, those who have just exited out of foster care, 18 to 26. And they should know that that is a lost population. That is a population that is no longer connected to the government resources. They literally put us in a bubble the whole time and said, go to the doctor on this day, do this on this day, go to court on this day. Up, oh, you're 18, make all the decisions on your own now. Wait, what? What do I do? Less than 2% of foster youth go on and obtain a bachelor's degree. Do you know how difficult it is to navigate a university system when you literally are out in the world on your own? They have high rates of homelessness, high rates of mental health disease, and high rates of very basic untreated conditions like cavities and asthma and eczemas. So that is also a population that needs to be protected because they're no longer under the foster care bubble where a whole bunch of you know resources are shifted towards them. And we can't just forget them and leave them out. Hmm. You're bringing up all sorts of things that really, admittedly, I don't ever think about, right? This is stuff that has never and does not affect me, but it doesn't mean that I can't share this story and do what I can to help. Hey friend, you may or may not be job seeking right now, but if you are, or you will be in the future, I'm popping in to let you know about my most popular offer, the Nurse Resume Template Bundle. This is a digital download product that includes six beautifully designed resume and cover letter templates for both the experienced and new grad nurse or NP. You deserve to have a resume and cover letter that really showcases exactly why you are the perfect person for the job. So never again lose out on the opportunity to interview because your resume got lost in the stack. When you purchase the nurse resume template bundle, you'll also get access to three really essential bonuses that I created for you. My credential organization system, a job application tracking system, and the most asked for resource, an ATS video explaining what the heck the ATS is. <laughs> and it also includes two really friendly additional templates that are super ATS friendly. Okay. So you can learn more about this and you can purchase the nurse resume template bundle for just $37 at the resumerx.com slash offer. That's the resumerx.com slash O F F E R. Now back to the episode. I have a question about the transitional age foster youth. 
if you were the president, if you ruled the world, what would it look like to set that group up for better success? You know, they almost all need like a life navigator, obviously like a mentor, but a life navigator that could go with them through their entire foster care history. And that one person is their life navigator for life, you know, like in in an ideal world. Um, Now we have some things like that. We have mentors, we have CASAs, which are court appointed special advocates and They're kind of like an outside party that go with kids to court and kind of represent the best interests of the court, tell the kid what's going on, et cetera. But I could imagine if there's always just been one person that went through foster care with me from six all the way and like walked me and held my hand through everything, that would have been, you know, great. I think also that there needs to be more of an effort for stability. So once kids are in foster care, you can leave that house for a multitude of reasons, you know, and and it's not always your fault. It's not always behavior wise. And so that instability is what starts to create the problems. Because now if I'm 17 and I've been in seven different homes and then you, Amanda, a very nice lady who's like, oh my God, I would love a foster kid. Come on. And when I walk in, I'm like, what, what B word, what are you going to kick me out to tomorrow? And you're like, damn, I just got, you know what I mean? And so they come in with not trusting you and they come in with this chip on their shoulder already because so many other foster homes have given up on them. So many people have given up on them and so many people see what they do as a behavioral problem and not as an indication of the pain and the trauma that they're going through, that they miss their mom that's why they punched the hole in your wall. And and I don't know how to deal with it, you know what I mean? But but that's why they did it, not because they don't care about your property. And so I think there are a lot of things that need to be done to fix the foster care system. But for sure, that transition period, they need more of a cushion to gradually transition. We don't just throw nurses you know what I mean? And everybody gets a chance to transition with a little bubble person. Like, here's how you transition. But foster youth, it's literally like, oh, you're 18. Good luck. I didn't even have anywhere to come home to on Christmas breaks. Literally, I was like couch surfing. I was homeless. I would live this whole life at Howard, come home over Christmas break and not have anywhere to go. That's crazy. Did you establish or do people, others establish some sort of social network, some sort of social connection? Like, did you have other foster care youth who were friends and you kind of shared that experience? Like, was it ever something that brought people together? No, I think a lot of adolescent foster kids, we are kind of in the closet. You know, I still have like my high school friends on my Facebook and now they're hearing about, you know, they heard about the documentary and everything. And they're like, I never even knew you were going through that. Like, you really don't disclose it because who wants to be different? You know, who wants to be the weird one, you know, but the way you are outed a lot of times is when you're placed with the family of a different ethnic background. So everybody knew, you know, when we hopped out of a van, when I lived in, in Marino Valley, which is really nice white family, when we hopped out of the little van and we looked like a little rainbow kids, you know, <laughs> I'm black, Hispanic, you know, and then the parents are white. Everybody's like, oh, that's the foster home, you know, and nobody wants to feel like that because 
kids are so weird and they ostracize other kids for the weirdest things. Like, why would you tease me because I'm in foster care? That's so weird. You know, as an adult, you can see that. But as a kid, they're like, oh, is that your foster mom? And you're like, what are you talking about? I'm not in foster care. You know, that's my that's my mom's friend picking me up. And so I didn't have a community of people that knew what I was going through at all. That didn't come until way later on in life. So not only were you struggling, but you were essentially struggling in silence other than what you could share in the home that you were in. Definitely. Definitely. You mentioned the documentary, and I think this is a great time to kind of transition to that. Tell me about the documentary. Tell us, tell us all about it. So the documentary is called Still Waters Never Crash. And it is my resilient journey from foster care to PhD. And what we did to make this documentary very special was we filmed on location at all of the places and with all of the people who were instrumental in that journey. And so specific motels, I mean, I have a really vivid memory of my childhood. So specific motels that I lived in, in Inglewood, We went to those motels, you know, specific places where I was homeless and slept outside. We went and filmed right there as I recounted the story. During the filming, I ended up getting back in contact with one of my foster moms, found her number. So all of this unfolded as we were filming, called her for the first time on film, went to see her and took my mother and my daughter to see my old foster mom. And it was the best day ever. And so it really just goes through my whole journey, my best friend who took me in when I was homeless, you know, and just all of the people and individuals that shape. And it goes all the way through, all the way up into where I am now and with Starter Nurse Academy. So we filmed over 10 months over eight different locations, two different states. We were paused for 89 days because of the pandemics and then the subsequent protests with everything that was going on. And that put a wrench in some of our plans because we didn't get to film at Howard like we had lined up and things like that. But we also got, you know, like protest footage and things changed because of that. Then it kind of shifted into like, I'm depressed because we're on lockdown. Let's talk about that too, you know? So it just kind of went through this whole journey. And, um, I'm just so proud of us for sticking through it through 2020 and actually doing it all. And it's just been an amazing project. That is so awesome. I've loved watching things unfold through what you've shared on Instagram. And we are recording this in late September, but the uh, this episode will air in December. So in December at the time of airing, how can we watch your documentary? What's that going to look like? So the best way to find the updates is on the Instagram, which is still waters never crash. And so, you know, we have the screening and from there now the goal, the screening is a 30 minute kind of extended trailer of the full 90 minute project. And now we're working on the post-production. So we have a company that we've hired out to score it, you know, to put all original music on there. Um, We have a company that we're working with for editing and just for post-production and lighting and sound and things like that. And so from there, we want to 
hit the festival circuits hard. So the film festival. So we want to pitch it to Sundance and, you know, all the different festivals, as well as, you know, we really have high hopes to get it on Netflix, to get it on, you know, Amazon Prime, to get it on HBO. You know, we don't see a reason why this can't be a project that really makes waves and brings awareness to this hidden population. You know, you have less than 2% of kids that go on to foster care. You have less than 1% of nurses who have a doctorate, you know, and like, what is, what do those statistics look like together? You know what I mean? And I, I was weird about it at first. Like, why do you guys want to tell my story? You know, they kept coming to me about it. And I'm like, dude, nobody wants to hear my story. Like, it's just stop pressuring me about it. But now I have kind of stepped into it and realized how unique the story really is and how much you guys are interested in it, even though none of, you know, none of you guys have spent any time in foster care. And, I, and that that's what shocked me. Like, you guys are really interested in hearing what foster Okay. Here's the story, you know, so it's been it's been great. That's awesome. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase that you can't read the label from inside the jar, basically saying, like, if you're too close to something, then you can't really you can't read the label. Like if you're inside the jar, you can't read the label. So if you're too close to your experience, you can't necessarily see how impactful it could be or or, you know, that's what it came to mind when you were describing like that you didn't think that your story was was worth telling, but I think that you were probably inside the jar and wow. couldn't, and couldn't read the label. So I'm going to marry well, that for weeks. <laughs> I really am. I love that. <laughs> I didn't come up with it. I will not take any credit for that, but it's one of my favorite um, sayings. And I feel like it is so applicable in, in lots of, you know, life events and, and things like that. I'm imagining that it costs money to you know, do all this post-production to pitch to all these different festivals and streaming services. And I think you mentioned that there is going to be a way that if my listeners wanted to support you, that we can donate to that. Is that true? Definitely. So it does cost money. We're all self-funded. We have funded, you know, all the trips when we go out of town, all of the camera equipment, um, pretty much everything paying for the sound person and everything. And so that's what we're pretty much raising money for to help us finish with all those post-production costs. And on, so we do have a GoFundMe and on the Still Waters Never Crash IG in the link. It has the link to the GoFundMe as well as the Cash App, the Venmo, the PayPal, which I believe is all like still waters never crash documentary. I'll get it the exact um, for you. And so the donations have been coming in. A lot of people have been supporting. Uh, we plan to do a virtual screening as well. And so that way we can raise even more money. And also people that aren't in the Los Angeles area can attend that. And we are now just hitting the ground running, trying to get the fund raising off the ground, but we've had a lot of support from nurses, from foster care agencies, from individuals from the LGBT community. You know, there's just a lot of people who have a special interest in this story for different reasons, because even as, you know, part of the LGBT community, even that, like there's a whole like cult following there that's like, wow, to see someone that looks like you, um, that is that identifies as lesbian, that is masculine presenting, and to see you in a professional space and environment 
environment and navigating the nursing profession is inspiring. I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't even like think about you. You know, then there are black women that are like, go, sis, go. You know, and then there are my nurses that are like, yes, you know, that I got my foster kids. They're like, woo, woo, you know. And so there's so many different directions that the support is coming in. I'm going to be honest, it's been so overwhelming. I haven't felt like this since when I got the PhD. I couldn't even explain how overwhelmed I was with like the whole world, like congratulate. And I almost wanted to like go, stop it guys. It's too much, you know? And so I'm still adjusting to like stepping into it and realizing like this whole story is about me, you know, and just kind of owning, you know, owning that and seeing the label, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You, you are taking up that space and you know, you're worthy to take up that space. And, and it says so much and it motivates so many other people who see you take up that space. So that's awesome. I can't wait to see it. We'll put all the links to everything in the show notes, wherever you're listening to this, you can just click on the episode notes um, to get the links for that. Before we wrap up, I would love to zoom in on Starter Nurse Academy, especially because majority of people listening are in the nursing profession. And I know that you provide some excellent services to them. So tell us a little bit more about that and kind of how you work with nurses and what that looks like. Sure. Um, so I'm super excited as we're, we're, you know, hitting that year mark. October 2019 is when we officially launched and we focus on professional development for new graduate nurses and senior nursing students, mainly resume, interview and LinkedIn training. And so we have, you know, one on one services like coaching and resume revisions, where it's myself and I have a small team of resume writers and we do cover letters and things like that and coaching. But the bigger thing we do are the e-products. And so we have, you know, self-paced lifetime access from any mobile device, e-courses and e-guides. And they include interviewing, for example, bedside reporting is our newest course that just came out, um, a LinkedIn guide, a resume guide, et cetera. And so we really just wanted to provide a space for new grads to be able to get that professional development that sometimes is missing when they graduate from nursing school. They might have a leadership class and today we're talking about resumes and doing one mock interview and that's it. But also no one's telling them the other things about how to navigate our profession, how to build their resume, how to strategically network, how to utilize LinkedIn to leverage their connections and to, to advance their career. And so I'm always looking beyond just like their first job, but also trying to prepare them to think big about their career and to think much larger about what they're going to do at some point once they finish the bedside or if they do, and then how can you start taking steps now to put you in that position to have options later, you know, and that's, that's the big thing. And, and the other thing is like, it's a lot of empowerment that goes into it. So I think because we're still young, we're still finding kind of what's going to be, you know, cause I'm also like this empowerment. I'm also like anti-bully, you know, and so I'm like taking on these different directions, but that is the bulk of what we do. So we try to facilitate one free workshop every month. Uh, one paid workshop every month, as well as the courses and the one-to-one -one coaching is ongoing. That's awesome. Well, you're, you're obviously speaking my language because I feel very similarly to you that this is an area that's really not explored in nursing school. And, you know, my business tends to focus, lean more towards the NP side of things and the same thing is happening. So, you know, they're not even providing that 
um, aside from, you know, maybe a day or two spent on resumes and CVs and cover letters, uh, it's, it's absent in nursing and advanced practice nursing education. So um, it's absent on the education side, but when you apply for jobs, it can make or break it. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a big void. And I'm so glad to kind of have you in this similar space because there are just so many nurses who need to hear the message of how to be confident when it comes to job searching and and how to have those tools to be successful. Like it just seems, how can we, I don't know about you, but this is kind of how I feel and why I'm motivated in my business. Like how can I just leave them all out to dry with this knowledge that I know can help them be more successful that really has no bearings on how good they're going to be as a nurse or an advanced practice nurse, but they, they need it to get the opportunity. So, I mean, we can't not share this information. So. Yeah. um, We passed up on, you know, I've been in different positions where I've hired the new grads and I've sifted through the hundreds of resumes and we probably passed up on some awesome people because we get so stuck into like, this is the format that we're looking for. This is how easily we want to be able to find the information. This is the type of cover letter. And we start to make this really, um, you know, it it has no basis to it, but we start to associate how well their resume is, like you said, with how well of a nurse they're going to be. You know what I mean? And we just, this arbitrary, that's what I'm looking for. We just made this arbitrary association between like, oh, you have a good, well-written, well-formatted resume without any mistakes. You must be a great new grad. You know, that's the one that we look at. But now that we know that, guys, like, let's do better. You know, we got to work the system. Exactly. And yes, yeah, you could not have said that better. I completely agree. If my listeners wanted to connect with you, follow along with you and your story, where would be the best place? I'd say the best place is Instagram. It's it's where I live. <laughs> and my Instagram is Doc Miller Nurse Coach, all one word, Doc Miller Nurse Coach. And then if they are new grad nurses, senior nursing students, then Starter Nurse Academy at Starter Nurse Academy. On my Doc Miller Nurse Coach, I'm kind of giving a lot of general guidance, you know, on life, on going back to graduate school, um, being a new grad, dealing with bullying, but specifically Starter Nurse Academy, all the content is for graduating nurses and new grads. So it's, it's their home for them. Great. And I'll link to those in the show notes too. Well, Sherika, thank you so much for spending this time with me, for sharing your story, for being vulnerable and brave and just putting yourself out there. I really appreciate that. Um, and you it was a pleasure a soothing, to talk with you. You have a soothing voice. And so it's like we're in therapy. I almost wanted to sit back and <laughs> when I was six years old, you know, you just kind of keep this warm. So it, you were very easy to talk to. Thank you so much. Oh, well, good. <laughs> you should have taken your nap after our interview. I could have just kind of <laughs> talked to you. I can, to I, can feel, I can double up. I But the Lakers <laughs> game is coming on, so I got to watch that. <laughs> All right. Well, I will let you go. Thank you so much again. Such a pleasure. All right. 
Well, that does it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in and making it all the way to the end. If you found today's episode helpful, would you take a minute and give me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts? It will truly help other nurses find this show and know that it's worth listening to. For more information about this episode, as well as a place to submit your questions or suggestions for future episodes or guests, head to nursebecoming.com. I cannot wait to connect with you again soon. And until next time, remember, I am always rooting for you.